Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life, life, life-saving. Well, very excited um, to welcome Todd Scherer, uh, who is the Associate Vice President of Research and Executive Director for the Office of Technology Transfer at Emory University, an office he joined in 2003. His team focuses on creating value from intellectual property developed by Emory researchers. Todd has worked extensively with those researchers to translate their promising scientific and medical discoveries into new products that benefit society. He's even helped pioneer new funding models to support the translation of research and work globally to identify, test, and implement best practices to increase the impact of academic technology commercialization. Um, he has held similar roles at Oregon Health and Science University, the University of Oregon, Washington State University, and he's a very active member of the Association of University Technology Managers, uh, having been the past president, a board member, and a committee member. Um, he's also a registered patent agent, which is a pretty important uh, feature in technical training for the role he's involved in now, uh, and was also you know, trained with a doctorate in toxicology and molecular biology at Washington State University. So welcome to our, the podcast, Todd. I'm excited to be here. And um, joining me today um, is my, uh, my partner, Suna LeMay, who's uh, uh, in our Atlanta uh, office and will be uh, co-leading this discussion with you today, Todd. So why don't we jump right in? Maybe you could um, just do a bit of a level set and describe your role at Emory. Uh, yeah, so I oversee the Office of Technology Transfer, as, as you said. Um, I've got a team uh, of about 20, and I say of about because um, on the heels of a pandemic and a great resignation, staffing these days is the number one challenge, and being fully staffed um, is the number two challenge. Um, so I say about 20. Um, it ebbs and flows a little bit. But we are focused on protecting, marketing, and licensing the university's intellectual property assets. I think most people know that at the end of the day, taxpayers fund uh, research through Congress and through the federal agencies. And universities are the recipients of many of those federal funds. And that we take those federal funds and we do research. And um, most of the work product that comes from that is really um, peer-reviewed publications. Uh, and we send new minds out into the world and we help advance the world that way. But occasionally, those research findings have the um, potential to end up a new product on the market. Um, and for decades, I think we sort of treated it more like it was a voluntary um, activity, but the reality is it's a mandate. I mean, we are expected, our social commitment as recipients of public funds is to try to turn those ideas into new products that can make people healthier or, or improve uh, their lives. And so that's the role of, uh, that my team provides. We work with researchers, we bridge the gap between that and what uh, is in the corporate world, um, and we transfer intellectual property rights um, to industry with expectations that they will um, diligently work to develop those intellectual properties and those technologies and turn them into products, and if not, give them back to us, um, where we will try to find another partner. 
Um, and of course, it's a high risk, high reward business model where uh, more things fail than will be successful. And, you know, we'll dive a little bit deeper into, you know, some of the um, interesting stories and, and models that you've helped uh, pioneer within Emory um, and even dissect a little bit about what you sat around, you know, some of those molecules actually making it all the way to the market. So I want to get into that. But maybe before we do, um, you could describe a little bit about your journey, you know, into the role. What got you into science? You know, you pursued a a PhD, you know, and, and what, what got you on that track to begin with? Was it something that you, um, always aspired to do, you know, growing up or was there kind of a, a moment in time that, you know, um, sparked your interest in moving in that direction? Well, I can say that I remember, uh, one year combing through the old, um, Sears catalog, looking for Christmas gifts to give my parents an idea for, and I found, um, a dissection kit that came with a microscope and um, dried specimens and things that you could dissect and look at under the microscope. So I don't think I realized it back then, but I've always had an interest um, in research. As I got a little bit older, um, that interest turned into an interest in animals. Hmm. Um, I loved uh, interacting with animals. I kind of became the local rehab guy if a bird of prey were injured um, and needed some care and attention and an opportunity to get back into the wild. And so I pursued a bachelor's degree in, in wildlife science. And sometimes when I say that, people say, ah, sure, Todd, every undergraduate's looking for wildlife science, but wildlife biology. And um, I, uh, I, I, when I finished that up, I was looking to go into research and I thought I would be a, a researcher in the local state um, uh, game uh, department. Uh, and I assumed that that's where my interest in animals would take me. But um, I happened to get a, uh, a Norcus appointment at Patel Pacific Northwest Labs, which introduced me to um, research outside of wildlife. Well, well, I started in wildlife research, I'm sorry. Um, but what I realized is that it was very difficult to get funding in that. Uh, there's a lot of competition because a lot of people are willing to do it because they're so passionate about animals. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, I wouldn't mind doing something where there was a little bit of capitalism that was introduced. Um, so I took a position in the developmental toxicology section at Patel Pacific Northwest Labs. And it was interesting being there because I was a technician doing ultrasound experiments, injecting things into the tail vein of, of rats and things like that. Still working with animals, still doing research, but there was this set of doors. Uh, and if you were a technician, you stayed on one set of the doors back with the laboratories. And if you were a PI or a researcher, you got to have an office on the other side of the doors. And I thought, this isn't gonna work for me. Um, I'm going to need to go to graduate school. Um, and so that took me uh, to graduate school at Washington State University um, in the farm tox program. And I uh, took a strong interest in the developmental toxicology um, and was studying sort of the role of gene expression in, in brain development. Um, and then I got ready to postdoc. Uh, and uh, I thought I'm gonna go to the West Coast, I'm sorry, the East Coast, I was on the West Coast and do my stint over there because you're always viewed as being brighter and smarter when you've come from someplace else. Um, but in the process of, of interviewing for that, um, the former dean of the College of Pharmacy was now running what was called the Office of Intellectual Property Administration. 
and the incubator facility for Washington State University. And he was looking for their, uh, uh, for a volunteer. And so I, as a starving graduate student that did anything for an extra buck, um, I took a position entering data into the first ever patents database. I didn't even know what a patent was. Um, but that became an interesting role and he got ready to hire. And I was about ready to accept a position at the University of Maryland studying the aging brain. I was going to take my interest in the brain, developing brain to the aging brain, but there's a lot of similarities. Um, but got an offer to um, take a position and stay in tech transfer. And I went with a smile on my face, um, knowing that research sometimes moving a little too slow for me, but still having a real interest in it. I went with a smile on my face when I thought about my job in tech transfer and what that would allow me to do. That's so cool. What a journey. Yeah. And, you know, I've had the privilege of talking to a couple of uh, scientists more on the chemistry side that I don't know if it was the Sears catalog or one way, one form or another, you know, a Christmas present it was a chemistry set usually ended in a fire that, you know, sparked their interest in it. So it's interesting to hear about the biological path, the, the dissection journey <laughs> that also led you into science and, um, and, and put you in such a unique role, you know, early on in, in your career where you kind of had that opportunity to be exposed to um, translation, right? I would think. And so the types of people that you get to interact with, you know, kind of straddle uh, many different worlds. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And and who are the types of folks that early on you worked with? And maybe you could even fast forward to today. How has that changed? And that's probably a big question that could, you know, fill a lot of time. But just some some snapshots of a little bit about what it was like when you got started. And then what's evolved and, and what's the nature and the phenotype of the individuals that you're working with today? Wow, I love that question. Um, for a lot of people that have been in the tech transfer profession or the innovation um, business for a decade, plus or minus, um, things have evolved very slowly, particularly if you've been at the university. But when you've been in it for three decades, um, a lot has changed. So I can tell you that when I got into the business um, in, about, uh, in, in about 1990, um, if you had a PhD and you were interested in tech transfer, you had a job because there were so few people. And this was um, a decade after the, the um, implementation of the Bayh-Dole Act, which, which was revolutionary, gave universities the ability to elect title of their inventions. So it's a decade later, and every university in the country that has a research mission is in the business of now trying to set up tech transfer offices. So there was a huge demand for people. Maybe that hasn't changed. Um, but very few people to, to draw from. And so as a as a as a young man with a PhD, um, they were happy to have me in the tech transfer profession. It didn't require any additional experience, and nobody would have thought about asking for it because you couldn't have found somebody with prior experience in the business. Um, so I got into the business. Um, we didn't. Have, we were just starting to use um, databases um, and get uh, and, and bring electronics and, and digital approaches um, into the tech transfer business. And I'll never forget the day that a department chair shook his finger in my face and he said, Todd, I do not want my faculty being distracted with this tech transfer stuff. <laughs> stuff. Um, they should be focused on peer-reviewed grant support and publications, and that's where they need to be focusing their attentions. So it was very clear to me that 
it was okay for me to do what I did for the university, but it was, I was gonna have to find carrots. There were no sticks. Um, faculty were gonna be very distracted. And um, they, very few of them had much of an interest or had ever even heard or thought about tech transfer or patents. And that I was gonna have to find a way to do this and make it uh, with, uh, and rely on and take as little time as possible from my faculty partners. Um, because they had lots of other things to do. And I also knew that um, we were allowed to do what we did as long as we didn't bring too much liability to the university. They didn't want that to happen. We were just starting to dabble in tech transfer. It was all pie in the sky stuff. And hey, by the way, nobody was ever gonna make any money in this business except for Stanford, Wharf, and MIT for the rest of it. It's just an investment uh, and a cost and an expense, but something we've been told we have to do as recipients of federal funds. So um, there's been a lot of um, sea changes over the years in our profession. Uh, one of them is that we do expect uh, our staff to um, have uh, more experience. Um, it's hard to get into a tech transfer office uh, with just a PhD or a JD anymore. It's not that you can't do it, you can. Um, and the best foot in the door is often through a, a contract specialist position. Uh, we know that uh, a PhD coming in the door is gonna take at least three years um, to get trained up to the point where they really truly understand and have seen enough deal flow. We know that it's no longer um, feasible or uh, practical to expect our faculty to be the CEOs of their startup companies. Um, when that first got hot later in the 90s and the early 2000s, we thought, okay, that's great, Dr. X, uh, you want a startup company? You're gonna have to run it because what we hear from investors is that they want you to have full skin in the game. And um, the other thing is that nobody had heard the term innovation ecosystem at that point in time. If you would have had a meeting of the innovation ecosystem of uh, Washington State University where I got started um, back in the 90s or even Oregon Health Sciences University, the University of Oregon, and you invited everybody to come to the room, not just from the university, but across the city, it would have been me. Yeah. <laughs> um, nowadays, we have innovation ecosystems and they started across our city and our state and our country because we didn't expect to have them within our universities when they first got started. Now, we've moved beyond that. We have innovation ecosystems within our universities. Now we have problems and conversations about how we leverage each other and about how we can work together to more seamlessly provide a continuum of experience and exposure and funding to help drive products um, all the way to the market. And now, in some cases, we've even implemented metrics related to tech transfer into tenure and promotion. Yeah, that's outstanding. Yeah, it, it, and it's come full circle, just back to that, you know, first conversation you had, you know, uh, way back when, you know, with regards to, um, you know, the instructions to stay away from faculty and let them focus. And now that it's part of their tenure review, um, that's that's amazing to see that sea change that you're describing. And, you know, maybe it would be useful, I think, for our audience to maybe uh to use your word, dissect a little bit more deeply um, some of the success stories that have come out of Emory. Because I mean, it, it's a legendary office. You know, there's there's no question that 
Um, you know, the, the faculty are prolific um, across a range of different areas. Uh, but certainly, you know, some of the work that's been done, you know, in the uh, earlier years and antiviral work and some of the stories of commercialization there um, would, I, I'm sure our audience would love to hear a few examples that you were involved in where, you know, it started there and then ultimately made it into patients and, and onto the market. And, and I think that will also set a nice platform that we could um, proceed from there and then talk about the future. Like what do those success stories look like? And then how do you design the right infrastructure so that, you know, you can keep it going, that it's not just a one and one and done situation? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't at least share some of the story around the HIV drugs. So uh, our researchers, and, and in order for, to have a great tech transfer program at any university, you must have great researchers because obviously that's who does the work uh, that creates intellectual property rights that, that um, builds the house that John built. Um, so you've got to have great researchers. And Emory has had several good core researchers in the antiviral space through uh, Dennis, Dr. Dennis Leota and Raymond Shinazi. And uh, back in the late 90s, the two of them came forward with um, a couple of structures uh, that they thought would be useful for HIV drugs. And they ended up in a partnership um, with a pharmaceutical company. And what's interesting about that is that Emory later ended up in litigation with that company. Uh, so Emory had, did what very few universities had done at that point in time and that have done today. And that is sort of um, really stand behind what they believed was the strength of their intellectual property position and take it into litigation. Um, perhaps easier to do at a private university than a public, um, but difficult to do at any university. And what was really important about that was it not only led to um, a settlement agreement around one HIV drug that is on the market in multiple combination therapies, to this day. But there was a second drug that um, we said we wanted back and our the, the and the other party said um, reluctantly uh, they at first they said no and eventually they gave it back to us based upon the theory that it would um, be a me too product and it would never make it to market and it had no value and we said thank you we would like it back anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and the really neat thing about that story is it demonstrates the fact that universities are willing to create are, are willing to create competition for themselves, because at the end of the day, what we want is um, best products on the market to help treat um, patients. So that drug ended up making it to market um, eventually, and then our licensee took it in head-to-head -head studies with the other one, and it outcompeted it. And we sold the future royalties in that drug in 2005 for a one-time payment of 540 million. Hmm. It was the largest royalty monetization at that point in time. What is um, really truly amazing about that whole story is a lot of people think it's old news. You know, it's 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 an old story. But what's really incredible about that is back when we were having conversations around the royalty monetization, nobody ever dreamed that that drug might be used to help prevent transmission. Um, we knew that it was going to be successful in treating HIV, and as everybody knows, um, drugs like that help turn uh, a death sentence into a chronic condition. Uh, and so uh, those two drugs have helped save um, 
millions of lives um, over the decades since then. And the incredible thing is if you'd have just even dared say it in the monetization, the price ought to be higher because you know what, one day we're gonna prevent transmission, you've been laughed out of the room. But today, um, it's actually being used to help prevent HIV transmission. Um, so it's a great story. And the really other great part about that story is Emory took that licensing revenue in the door. And a lot of times people question what universities are going to do. And I should back up for a moment and say we weren't Stanford, Wharf, or MIT. Yeah. And yet we had a big hit technology. Yes. So anybody can have a big hit technology, mm -hmm. any university, even Emory. So some of that money that came in uh, that went into the lab was then used to create what we sort of sometimes refer to as our, uh, as our own subsidiary biotech company. Uh, and that biotech company came along and created a drug called molnupiravir, uh, which has now been available for quite a number of years through emergency use authorization being sold by Merck to treat COVID. And now, just to make sure the cycle um, continues, we're taking some of the proceeds from Molnupiravir and we're reinvesting them into a, a drug development program, a funding program to fund additional therapeutic, promising therapeutic projects to see if we can continue the, the chain of success. That's really cool. Yeah, and I mean, Suna, we've heard a lot about um, you know the deep uh, experience and the fruits you know, of of the investment that universe, the university had made, you know, uh, with regards to the antiviral program backing uh, Rationazi and, and uh, Dennis Leota through their research and then um, stood strong in being able to commercialize that innovation and, and it benefited from that. We've also learned, you know, that drive, um, that this model that has been described to us is a unique one. Um, that that program itself seems pretty novel, uh, and I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, and maybe how those early days formed thinking about new models around how how you could sustain what otherwise might have been a, a one-off scenario, uh, Todd. Well, and, and talk about another sea change. So when I got started in tech transfer. The, the, the theory and the culture was that, hey, uh, you know, we do basic research, we do mechanistic research. If that ends up resulting in some patent rights, we'll pursue those. But hey, you know what, then we're gonna lob them over the wall and it's really the job of industry to come pick those up and do something with us because we're the ivory tower. Um, and we just don't do development work. It's somebody else's job to do that. And then a number of things have happened over the years, including a 2008 global financial crisis where biotech went bankrupt and big pharma backed away from early stage drug discovery and said, we're not doing it. Um, and somewhat to my surprise, but delight, I think, universities and the federal government basically stood up and said, hey, we'll do that. We'll do this early stage drug discovery stuff. So now we carry the football sometimes all the way down to the other goal line um, in, in some cases or very close to it. And we're not just looking for industry to come and pick that up. I, I guess we crawled up the wall one time and looked over and realized there was a gigantic valley of death and that somebody was gonna have to push this stuff a little bit further along because industry wasn't standing there like we thought they were um, back at that time frame. So uh, Drive is, is an example of that. Um, Drive is an example of an investment in a more corporate-like structure. So we hired a former president and CEO of Chimerics, 
Um, it also happens that this guy had gotten his PhD years ago, and so did his wife at Emory, uh, I meant to say, and as well as, as, as did his wife. And so they had some Emory ties. And we knew we had to bring somebody that could create a laser focus on risk reduction and value creation. And that's very difficult to do um, in the academy. But we decided that we needed to do that. We had already learned from our litigation, our mediations, our arbitrations, um, and just the business of trying to get licenses done. Uh, that over and over again, we heard that ah, it's just too early, Todd. You know, it's, it's just too early. I mean, that's yeah, really interesting. That's a great research paper, but you know, it's just too early. So Drive was created, um, again, using resources from uh, licensing revenue uh, in large part um, for the sole purposes of trying to advance our intellectual properties, um, create more value, make them easier to license and easier to get to market. And in the case of Molnupiravir, Drive was able to actually get that to an IND, which is almost unheard of it at a university because it started from the discovery of the, um, of the small molecule structure. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a little bit different than some of the other drug discovery institutes and centers um, at other universities because DRIVE itself has been sort of very non-academically focused and um, often criticized for that. Um, but as a tech transfer guy, I love it because I know that the only way that I know the best way for that to be successful is to be have that laser focus on risk reduction and value creation and not be distracted by the need to fund other academic projects because of the because of the realization that the more faculty you can serve, the, the better you're serving the institution, so to speak. Yeah, and I'd love to kind of then um, continue on that arc as far as natural next steps. Um, you know, there's no question that the innovation and the commercialization model, you know, uh, powered by Emory and then evolving through Drive um, has been highly successful and repeatable. Um, one of the things that uh, we're excited about with regards to the future um, in Atlanta itself is that there, there may indeed be quite a possibility to do more of that work nearby, you know, if if you have enough um, of the right elements, you know, in a given geography, might it be possible to do uh, take it even a step further? Maybe not even within your hands, but but with other partners uh, in in the uh, so-called ecosystem that is seems to be developing in a in a more robust manner. I may uh, tip it over to Suna, who can characterize a little bit more about what she's seeing happening in Atlanta, and ultimately trying to get your perspective, Todd, on what you see as potentially um, evolving in Atlanta here in the next decade as it relates to uh, doing more of that type of work and scaling it even further down that development pathway, but near nearer to home, if you will. Yeah, I think, uh, John, just to uh, put a little framing, um, you know, when I'm down here, and mind you, my background's biomedical engineering, so I, I'm a tools person, but you know, it, we, we're constantly talking about the impact and influence of like technology-driven biology, and, and we're seeing the influence of the ecosystem kind of doing this integrated, taking an integrated approach and from different perspectives to help further push at every step of discovery. And so it's 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 really, I'm really curious to kind of dive in that. I know we've kind of talked about it before, but um, 
just like, where do you see it going? What, what kind of trends are you really feeling when it comes to your faculty innovators, the ones that you're watching, the ones that you're excited to recruit? Like, where do you, where do you see the future moving towards? Um, well, the, the first thing I see is uh, a, what am, how, how would I say that? Um, I, I see our innovation ecosystems starting to mature. Um, I don't think um, I co-authored a book chapter on the innovation arms race at universities. And one of my greatest frustrations is that we start all these new programs and, and bells and whistles, but we don't necessarily think about their impact and, and even what the metrics of success might be for those programs. Um, but we create them um, because somebody had a conversation with uh, faculty and they heard there's not enough of this or enough, not enough of that. Um, and so what we haven't done yet is really figure out how to leverage those things as effectively as they can be. Um, and again, I can't believe I'm saying this. You know, I, I just can't because I, I never I never knew or never never thought that we'd have innovation ecosystems at the university. I came to Atlanta in large part because I thought there was a larger innovation ecosystem in Atlanta than there was in Portland, Oregon, which is true. I knew it wasn't a bio cluster, but I thought it would at least uh, be more of an innovation ecosystem. And uh, over the last 20 years, I've watched the innovation ecosystem at my own institution emerge. Um, so I think uh, what I see is a lot of the potential for the future for us is, is um, refining that innovation ecosystem and giving it time to mature and figuring out how to make the pieces work together. Um, I mean, to John's point, we don't, um, we, uh, we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, we have to partner with other stakeholders. It's just far too expensive to do drug development and even biomedical just development kind of across the board. And so we're gonna have to work together on it. And we've never found a magic bullet in tech transfer. It's always been the toolbox approach. Um, whether it's partnerships, funding programs, IP, shots on goal, rock turners, frog kissers, whatever whatever your analogy is, that's, that's the business we're in. Uh, and we just gotta be relentless um, about doing that and committed um, to turning those rocks or kissing those frogs or kicking those tires so that we can find the right partners and access to the kind of funding and things it's going to, to take. Um, so we don't have a mature biocluster in Atlanta, um, but it continues to grow. Um, fortunately, it's, it's a large business community um, and there's a lot going on in the innovation space, um, even, if it's not, <laughs> even if it's not in the bio uh, business um, end of things. Yeah, and you know, if you take take it a step further, and you referred to innovation arms race, I'm just interested in your perspective on that, especially with your role over the years um, at Autumn, uh, and and watching um, this sea change that you described earlier. Um, can you maybe unpack a little bit what what's driving that innovation arms race, and what does it mean for you know emerging? Ecosystems uh, like Atlanta, um, as as you look ahead for the for the next decade, could you maybe describe what you mean by that um, for our audience? Yeah, and I, and I'll just preface it by saying I wish I fully understood um, what is um, what has created the obsession uh, with with innovation and entrepreneurship, um, but I love it because I was tech transfer when tech transfer wasn't cool. Um, and now it's super cool and, and everybody's doing it. Even if it's not tech transfer, it's, it's innovation support. 
So I sometimes think back to the, um, the, the 2008 global financial crisis and all of the things that were happening then. And um, there, was, uh, there was really a, a concern that, um, you know, universities weren't, just, just weren't doing enough. Um, well, no, what I should say is everybody, every country in the world was looking to revive its economy. And so the, they, the people, this is sort of Todd's version, but so the people that study these things studied it and they went out and they looked and they said, wow, you know, the way to save the world economy or your own national economy or the global economy is to um, create more jobs. Okay, great. Well, let's go to work on what it takes to create more jobs. Well, look at this. It takes money. And it takes, um, and well, I should say most jobs are created, first before you get to that, most jobs are created through small companies. This was something the Kauffman, the Ewing Kauffman Foundation, others came to the conclusion and said that that's where job growth occurs. In, 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 in companies that are less than five years old, not, not established companies. Well, then the other people went back to work and said, well, how do we get more companies? And these are new companies now because they're companies less than five years old. What's it take to get those? Well, it takes money and it takes people and it takes technology. So everybody's ecosystem started to focus on this because it became imperative um, that we had to save the country and save the economy. And there was a lot of effort and a lot of interest and a lot of just hard focus on this. And it's, it's just grown ever since. And so here we are today, and nobody questions the fact that the university should be involved in, in innovation. Uh, my wife runs a center and institute at Georgia State University focused on granting degrees in innovation. Why would we be doing that? Um, so everybody is thinking about businesses. It's cool, it's sexy um, to start a business, to have a new company. Everybody ought to be thinking about doing it, maybe have four or five on the side. Um, and uh, there have been a lot of support programs put in place. Um, states uh, have jumped into the game to fund these things because we want the work growth, we want the growth in the workforce that comes out of this uh, and the wealth that that brings along. Um, cities. Uh, have started doing it and universities are doing it. And it's almost like the fitness facilities and the climbing walls were back in the early 90s. You gotta have these things at your university now if you wanna attract students, even if they're not getting a degree in innovation. Mm -hmm. you gotta have, uh, you've gotta have an incubation facility for them to go kick around in and talk about their new ideas because you can't not be a young person and not think about starting your own company these days. Yeah, no, very interesting and a great, great analysis and characterization. Um, I, building on that, you know, my observation too, you know, just kind of the the metaphor I use for this innovation arms race as it relates to kind of biomedical innovation within research institutions around the country is much like, you know, a... a uh, a football program that's trying to, you know, build a, you know, a top 10, you know, program, uh, division one, uh, football program, they're recruiting, you know, a five-star linebacker. They bring that individual in and they show them their Jersey with their name on the back of the Jersey hanging on the locker, the weight room, they'll work out in the practice facility resources, and then where they're going to play the game on Saturday nights on, under the lights. And, and the draw, if, if you're not in that, um, if you're not providing those resources, you're missing out on those individuals that increasingly can't have an economic impact on the university, whether it be through more translational grants, uh, more philanthropic funds, you know, that are motivated, you know, to, to support individuals like that that can translate. And then, of course, on the tech transfer 
side, potentially, you know, more companies that can return recurring revenues back to the back to the university. And it's it's a speculative process, but it does seem like if you're not doing that and building that infrastructure, uh, you're foreclosing on the opportunity to even kind of be in the be in the game. What what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I agree. Um, I think uh, I think it's no uh, universities are no longer asking themselves, should we be doing this? Um, what they're asking themselves is, what can we do to increase our odds of being successful yeah. at this? Mm -hmm. That's what they're asking themselves. That's the question we've we've waited for a long time to make sure that every university is asking itself. And I think it's really important that universities stop assuming that this will never happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, I try to really spread that message and that narrative. Um, if you're conducting good science, good research at your, your university, and you have a program in place that allows you to try to capitalize and capture that IP, then you have a shot on goal. You know, my colleagues have sometimes over the years said, well, one in, pick your number, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 vengeance disclosures is a big hit. So some people hear that and they think, ha, why bother? Uh, I, we should be saying exactly the opposite. Why bother? Bother go out and get as many invention disclosures as you possibly can. Nobody says it'll be the 3,000th or the 4,000th. It could be the second. It could be the first. But it points out that the reason that those universities, um, those bigger universities were successful um, isn't because it can only happen there. It's because they've just got more research that's driving more innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there is no requirement that you have a billion dollars of research funding every year at your institution in order to ever be entitled to a technology that can have a big impact. Um, you just need to, to um, have research and you just need to have a program that allows you to, to capture your intellectual property rights. One of the inventions that I'm most proud of, of us at Emory is something that never made us a dime. It's a telescoping mosquito catcher. And it was made with components bought off the shelf at Home Depot. And the, and the state of the art prior to that was a backpack kind of, you can almost picture a leaf blower, created by scientists at the CDC to capture mosquitoes and monitor the spread of disease. Hmm. Well, we came up with this, or our researcher came up with this nifty little device that had a telescoping, it was PVC pipe that you could extend so that you could, um, so that you could capture uh, uh, mosquitoes up, up under a bridge, uh, and it was super light to carry out into the field. And we licensed that um, uh, across a number of countries at cost. Um, and those kinds of things are making a difference in the world. You know, we don't have to make a bunch of money uh, to have a big impact um, on society. Yeah, and and kind of building on that, that's that's a great story. And and impact, you know, is a, is a key driver. Um, and I'm sure a motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. You know, that that um, building and uh, it, just thinking about your journey and. What an entrepreneurial path. I mean, you're a risk taker in the sense that you took on a role um, before, as you said, the role was even understood and the words, you know, like ecosystem and innovation, you know, were, were not even on the horizon. I want to ask you kind of as a, you know, a, a pioneer, um, a, as a, uh, a creative individual that's kind of moving things forward in non-conventional ways, um, along with an institution that's done that as well. What are some of the things that you think 
are important elements, you know, of the things that have to happen outside of the university, you know, for um, more of that innovation to continue to move down that 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 pathway to commercialization. And I'm speaking here specifically about biomedical innovation, and and maybe just as a uh, a setting stone, you know, w- one of the challenges that we we'd always seen here in Chicago was. Um, we didn't have the you know lab infrastructure. Uh, there was always a lament that we just we didn't have the money, and then you know as we didn't have people that knew what to do. We didn't have didn't have executives. And one of the things that uh, we've noticed is that you know post COVID, where you know management teams can be anywhere, um, that's been a liberating feature uh, that allows ecosystems that perhaps have the infrastructure. Um, do have the scientific talent and the the the, the investment backable faculty that can you know in a repeater fashion spin out great ideas like the Dennis Leotas uh, of the world um, that there there is this um, you know you you put the, you put the labs in place you put the money in place but then where's the management team um, our thesis is that if you have those other two things infrastructure some seed sticky capital. Um, and of course you need local talent and particularly scientific talent, you know, as it emerges from the university. Well, what are your thoughts around maybe the liberalization uh, of more of these uh, over science, but underdeveloped ecosystems that, you know, can succeed with the right uh, with the right types of infrastructure in place, any any thoughts on w- missing elements that you think are in Atlanta today that need to be addressed? And I just those are just a couple of features that you know we were always hearing about in Chicago and and uh, as we were trying to stand up what we're doing here with Portal. Well, I, I guess the one thing that I would really like to emphasize is is something you just said. I mean, one of the the real great features that resulted from the pandemic um, uh, in, in a, alongside many bad things that happened. One of the good things that happened is a flattening of the world. Um, and it was wonderful to see the world be flattened um, in the venture capital space. Um, suddenly folks like you um, didn't expect to get on, uh, didn't expect to attend board meetings in person anymore or meet people in person or feel like they had to be in your own backyard as much. And uh, we all expected we were just going to do business over a Zoom call. And hey, Zoom works just as well over 300 miles as it does um, over a mile. Sometimes it works even better. So we could get people together um, and make things happen. Now I'm smart enough to know that I don't know that I can count on the world staying flat. And as we move away from the pandemic, um, my guess is the world will gravitate more back towards an in-person world. And maybe to some extent, we're starting to see that already. Um, But I hope it stays flat as long as it can, because those of us outside biocluster regions have always been at a disadvantage. And you know what? I'm, I'm happy to hear us not talk as much about trying to recreate Boston um, because we've been trying and we haven't had much success at it. Um, if we can do it, don't get me wrong, I would love to see it. And I would love to work in a biocluster before I um, before I uh, before I retire. Um, but, you know, maybe it doesn't have maybe we can redefine a biocluster yeah. um, and maybe we can get the kind of components in place 
that help catalyze the ecosystem enough uh, that we can supplement it uh, through the flattened world with people that are located more distantly and remotely. And maybe we can equalize the playing field and maybe we can put uh, an equal emphasis and an appropriately scaled pro rata equal emphasis on every ecosystem um, throughout the country and not just those that happen to be um, in a biocluster. Um, I think that would be wonderful, and uh, I would love to see that happen, and I have no doubt that the cluster of tomorrow is going to look a little bit different than what a cluster uh, used to look like, um, and I, uh, I think that everybody will benefit um, if we can succeed in that, and so that it no longer matters where your life science discovery comes from, that it has an equal opportunity to be funded and to attract the kind of talent it's going to take um, to make it successful. Uh, and it, even though it's not located and doesn't come out of MIT um, or Silicon Valley. That's a great perspective. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I want to you know, um, ask Suna, you know, what's on her mind. I can see her wheels turning and I think she's got some follow-up uh, questions to that, you know, as we continue this uh, delightful conversation. Oh, well, thank you, John. I mean, mine, I, and I, you know, we've talked, Todd, but I, my background is very outside of the academic tech transfer. So, you know, just um, my knowledge and awareness of, you know, going back to just like the heavy pipeline of therapeutics going to market. And when you talk about how it's changed from when you started in this to where you are now, I just always think about um, in terms of structuring and being able to have eyes on what's coming up and what's coming down the pipeline and how do you how do your goals change how have they changed over the decades right and i'm just curious to see when you saw emory rising as like we have this large amount of ip and research that's that we're generating how how do we communicate this not only to our internal academic um peers in administration, but then how do we successfully, because Emory is known for having this large pipeline, but I'm, I'm curious to, to get back to kind of like your, what you saw as you were, as Emory's tech transfer and how you communicate that and how you put an emphasis on the most promising and how do you still keep a pipeline coming behind you? Like, what, how did you see the structure of the tech transfer office, like the standard practices? How, how did you kind of put your hands in there and help shape to what it looks like today. Yeah, you know, one of the things I heard you mention multiple times in there, I think, was communication. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I love communication. I wear my heart on my sleeve. But um, I get so frustrated with communication. I mean, we're in a communication overloaded world. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, why, that's, that's such a great story. Why haven't we told anyone? And I can't help sometimes but think to myself, well, we've tried to tell people. I'm just not sure how to get the message to them. Um, so I feel like that's a, a bigger part of the challenge. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, communication is critical. And figuring out how to communicate is something we spent a lot of time in. Uh, at Emory. I mean, my goal has always been to be on the short list of, of the venture firms. Um, I know that I'm not the only technology provider out there in the world. And what I want to do is be on the short list of people like Portal. 
Uh, I want you to be confident that when you come to my office and my university, that you're going to um, be working with a sophisticated group of professionals um, who not only understand their obligation to try to defend the university's rights and protect a return to the university, but who understand that the end game, the ultimate validation is really a new product on the market and that everybody only, everybody only wins is if and when that happens. Um, for a lot of the, the years and even decades of academic tech transfer, we were focused on intermediate metrics. Um, and it's because we were new and young and there wasn't time for products to hit the market yet. So communicating is, is a major challenge. Um, it truly is. And you know better than I do um, because you're better at it than I am. That social media is just lit up uh, with everybody's messages and everything they're promoting. And I guess we, not I guess, I know we have to be relentlessly committed to that as well. We're going to continue to tweet. And, and, you want Snapchat uh, yet? Or? <laughs> and I haven't done Snapchat. Where's your TikTok dance? <laughs> we, you know, we use uh, we use LinkedIn and and we and we tweet or, or formerly known as tweet Twitter. Uh, we do that all the time. Um, you know we love blogs. Uh, we write. Um, we we've, we we one of the things that we've done to try to communicate things and this started at Autumn quite a number of years ago, but I think is still really important when you talk about impact. Is is really create videos around patient benefit and put patients um, into our videos so that we can help people understand you know, what we do. Um, when I was on the autumn board years ago, we hired a PR firm because we realized that we really sucked at telling our story, that even our own mothers didn't understand what we did. And we hired this PR firm and I forget how much money we spent, but I'll never forget um, this person, you know, we're all getting seated and she starts to give us the download and she says, the problem is, the problem is, it's a bumper sticker world and you folks have an essay. <laughs> and it's still, to a large extent, our problem today. Uh, we try to explain what we do. You know, it's kind of like BASF. We don't make the products you buy. Uh, we make the products you buy better, or in our case, we make the products you buy possible. Um, but we don't make the products you buy. So what do we do in tech transfer? How does university play a role in, uh, how does university research play a role in product discovery and, and new drugs on the market? Um, it's not an easy thing to communicate, even if you know what the channels are and, and how and when and, and where you want to communicate it. Yeah. Well, you may need a bigger uh, vehicle to, so you can just have a bigger bumper sticker. That may be what. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know our, we're, we're going to wind down our conversation. It's been really um, a, an enjoyable time speaking with you today. Todd, um, my, my closing question would be just a, a foreshadowing, kind of looking ahead to the future. You alluded to, you know, this next generation of faculty that's coming on board. They're almost, in my experience, um, hardwired for, you know, impact and innovation and translation. Want to compare notes with you on that? Are you seeing the same thing? And then like, what flavor of science um, are you most excited about as you look out over the next decade for uh, what's happening at Emory? Well, uh, I'll start with the, the last question first. And one of the areas that I'm very excited about for Emory um, is cancer. So we've played a, a really big role in an impact in, in infectious disease. And, and I can assure you we're not going to stop. That'll continue to be uh, a real strength of ours. 
But cancer um, just is obviously a, a plethora or a whole host of diseases. It isn't one thing. Um, and we really don't have uh, a lot of real promising cancer therapies. Um, when I was leaving OHSU, uh, I was on the heels of Gleevec, um, which our researcher had played a big role mm. in helping to get that approved. And that was the first ever targeted um, cancer immunotherapy. So um, the other thing is that Emory just received the first ARPA-H grant, and ARPA-H is a brand new federal agency, very focused on sort of revolutionary new technologies, and it's focused in, in cancer and using RNA-based technologies to have an impact on cancer. So I would say that is one that I am incredibly excited about. It's a big goal for the university. It is a big, our, our Winship Cancer Institute um, is incredibly strong. Um, in cancer research, um, in the clinical trials they conduct. And I think that's an area where we've got so much work to do uh, and a lot of potential, and I, and I think we can play uh, a part of that. Uh, happens to fit into the White House goals and focus around uh, the cancer moonshot. Uh, and so it's, it's just a, a good space to be in. But um, unfortunately, it's very difficult to license early stage um, oncology products and stuff, and, and in large part because of the, in, the insane risk associated with them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if, if for, for certain, for, for some of the antiviral drugs, you get them into the market and you get phase two data, um, people are pretty much convinced to know that it's probably gonna uh, survive phase three. Mm -hmm. You bring an oncology product right. um, into the market and um, I don't know, I think you gotta be all the way through phase through and maybe beyond that mm -hmm. before anybody's really going to believe that it's gonna have an incredible impact. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we're seeing drugs get approved in that space that have a marginal impact, but some hope is, is usually better than no hope. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot of potential there. AI is, is just a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and AI is sort of infiltrating everything we do these days. Um, and, I don't, and we obviously haven't even seen the, the tip of the iceberg with regards to what AI can do for us in cancer mm -hmm. is um, not probably, but uh, certainly going to be an area where AI will have a big impact because we're probably going to be looking at massive data sets uh, and things in order to try to predict the outcome um, of a disease that is um, inherently uh, unpredictable and complicated. Yeah, no, that's well. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that's very exciting and uh, encouraging to hear about the, the work and the focus. You know, one trend I've noticed too is, um, as much as we've talked about, um, even at the early part of this conversation, kind of the, the the valley of death. You know, that early stage, and and some disease areas are more difficult to kind of you know, move out into the marketplace. Um, you, talked about the difference between, you know, an infectious disease program and its translation from early stage to clinical value, uh, contrasting that to oncology. Um, one thing I've noticed that's interesting to watch is um, we're certainly working with a lot of pharma companies now that want to get in super early. I don't know if you're seeing that, but they're getting into the company creation business. They're working for, looking for other partners to move upstream. I think that's a really interesting thing. And again, it, there'll be, I'm sure, indication specific and maybe it's not only in uh, areas like oncology, but maybe in more emerging areas and neurodegenerative or whatever, whatever their particular strategy might be. But I think that's an encouraging trend as it relates to getting um, more commercialized earlier in the process, um, you know, in, in, in the sense that um, to the extent that they're investing early and willing to take those early risks, that continues to be keep the spigot open, if you will, for early stage innovation 
getting traction early to give it a greater chance of translation downstream. Any quick thoughts, closing thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, I I would love, uh, yes, I, you know, I hadn't thought about the fact that it might be a trend. So we've done a couple of deals recently, one with a startup, one with an established pharma with very early stage assets in both of those cases. So maybe you can add those data points to the trend because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen enough data points to realize it might be a trend. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm beyond excited to hear that it might be a trend because man, I'm the early stage guy. Um, even the early stage investors to talk about how they invest early stage, well, it's usually not as early, it's nowhere near as early as people like me uh, are seeing. So it's been the bane of my existence uh, is finding funds and people that are willing to jump in um, early enough, which I guess is part of the reason why we've decided we have to pick the football up and carry it a little bit further um, down the road and and maybe meet you out there in the valley instead of expecting you to come all the way to, to my side. I love it. That's a great uh, closing statement. Again, Todd, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you, Suna. Great to have you uh, for this uh, co-piloted conversation. Um, I know our audience will really be inspired by your story, Todd. Um, you were cool before it was cool, <laughs> and, uh, and an entrepreneur before you even you know really knew what you were getting into. So um, we look forward to collaborating and uh, look forward to a bright future for uh, both Emory and uh, patients downstream and the Atlanta ecosystem as it evolves. Yeah, well, well, thank you for giving me a chance to be heard um, as a guy who spent three decades trying to be heard above the noise um, in, in, in an environment where it's not always the most relevant message. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you, Suna, in particular, for, for, for seeing the potential in me and making this happen. <laughs> Wonderful. You're great. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 